I encourage you this morning to turn with me once again to the book of James, James chapter 5. You can follow along with your bulletin insert as always if you'd like. James chapter 5. We're continuing this morning to work through this first century letter, which I hope and pray has had all kinds of practical impact for you. Um, James has often, as we've seen, directly mirrored the teaching of Jesus, his brother, and has warned us of so many things. He's warned us about our wealth recently, our pride, our tongues. He's encouraged us to press for joy, to cry out to God for wisdom, to not boast about tomorrow, to take the Word of God seriously. And I pray that all of these things, that some of these things the Lord has used to grab a hold of your life, to grab a hold of your heart, to grab a hold of your priorities. You know, preaching is one of those weird things. My job is one of those weird things where uh, I, I study, I wrestle, I pray, and then I speak, and it's gone, and it's there, and it's in your lives, it's in your heads, and sometimes I hear bits about what has happened, and often I don't hear anything. And so I trust and pray that the Lord is doing His work through His Word in your lives. And today we turn to James chapter 5. We're almost done with this letter. We're going to be a few more weeks in it. And uh, today we're going to uh, tackle verses 7 through 11 where he speaks directly to you. And what, what I mean by you is you Christian, you church. There was some speculation last week about who exactly was he talking to, unbeliever, believer today. It's very clear he is talking to you, you who look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's talking to you about or what he's going to talk to you about is waiting well. That's the title of the sermon today. It's also a title of a sermon I preached a couple years ago, not from James chapter 5, but from somewhere in Corinthians. We talked briefly about what waiting well looks like in terms of Paul's admonishment to the church to wait well. But this is James. This is a completely different angle, but it's the same subject, waiting well. And so listen, as I read, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is certainly a morning where you want to keep your Bibles handy, keep your Bibles in your lap. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages, not just camping out in James chapter 5 alone. You might want to follow along as I read some of these other passages. Listen as I read James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. He says to the church, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until, he, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. 
and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. I'm going to start this morning with a bit of honesty. I frustrate myself often with my lack of patience. And I know for a fact, because it happened yesterday, that I frustrate at times my wife as well with my lack of patience. You see, I'm that guy on the interstate that is angling for the fastest route, changing lanes, speeding up, slowing down. I'm that guy at the supermarket that is counting people's items in order to determine which line is going to go the fastest. It is, is that woman an old-fashioned check writer? She looks like she's going to pull out a pen and a checkbook and write a check. I don't like that I'm that way. I clearly need to grow in the area of patience, a little public confession there, because I know that my impatience exposes my heart. It exposes the fact that I'm all about my agenda at times and all about my timetable. So I don't like the fact that I'm impatient, that I struggle with patience. But I also don't like the fact that our culture, the culture that you and I live in, the air that we breathe, feeds this this fact in me. It feeds this tendency in me. What I mean by that is we avoid waiting at all costs, don't we? A couple years ago, we, as a family, the Hitchcocks, we went to Disneyland, the mecca of teaching you patience, right? As you wait in line for an hour to sing It's a Small World, which we didn't because the line was so long. But you go to Disneyland and people say, if you're going to Disneyland, you've got to take advantage of the fast pass right? The fast pass. It's these passes that you can get. You've got to pre-plan where you're going to get them, when you're going to get them, because you can only get them in windows. But if you get a fast pass, you can come to a ride, and you can, with a lot of pride and arrogance, you can just walk by all of these people that have been waiting in line for an hour in order to get to the front of the line. Because it's not satisfactory to just wait, and then there's the modern drive through Ah, as you know it, my son works at Chick-fil-A. Who doesn't love Chick-fil-A? Especially when they have two lanes in the drive through Two lanes. And not just two lanes, but they don't want you to get impatient waiting to get up to the impersonal box to make your order. They make the poor kids stand out in the rain with iPads so that you're greeted right when you come there, lest you lose patience for your chicken sandwich. It's just the nature of our culture. We don't like to wait. We do everything we can to not wait. Well, those are just funny examples. James today is talking about patience. 
James today is taking the role of a pastor, and he's encouraging the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, he's encouraging you and I through the Holy Spirit on something on a much grander level than traffic or ordering a chicken sandwich. And yet, it's a patience that ought to trickle down to all of those areas. As I've said a hundred times, it ought to trickle down to the mundaneness of our lives. Now, I just read the passage. There are quite a few imperatives in this passage, but we're going to center our thoughts and our thinking, our, our thoughts and our uh, time together on three different words that James uses in this passage. Three words that build upon one another to inform our waiting how we wait well. And so I'm going to use just the language of the text, and we're going to meditate on these three things, the first of which is this. Be patient. Jesus is coming, period. Be patient. Jesus is coming, period. It's a simple point. It's a simple reality. And we briefly begin here with this simple point that is a tremendous reality that James says ought to affect us every single day of our lives. Could this be the day, Lord, when you come again? Jesus of Nazareth, The one born 2,000 years ago, recorded in the history books as a man of otherworldly stature, the one who was crucified by Roman authorities in his day, who was risen from the dead, who left this earth 40 days later, the one who has been seated at God's right hand ever since, ruling and reigning, making his enemies his footstool, this same Jesus will return to this earth. This is a historical claim, and his return will be a historical event. Brothers and sisters, all of human history, all of our lives are hurtling towards this point. Because Jesus' coming will be the end of the world as we know it, and it will be the beginning of a world that we can't quite imagine here and now. And here's the reality. We are closer to the coming of Jesus today than we were yesterday. John 14, 3, Jesus' own words, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Acts 1, the angels said to The disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is after Jesus left. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here's the reality. You and I were born in a time, in a time period that the theologians like to call the already and the not yet. In other words, as we talked about last week, these are the last days These are the last days. The long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ has come. 
He has brought his spirit. The spirit of God has come in fullness. The spirit of God is here with God's people. The ingathering of nations has begun and it continues every single day. But there is so much more that's unfinished, right? So much more that we long for. So much more that needs to be completed. The king needs to return to make things right, to bring the kingdom in fullness. And so we wait. And James says we're supposed to wait with patience. Now, what does patience look like? Well, one author defined patience this way. It's the best definition I found, at least the one I like the most. It says, patience, patience is quietness of heart, rest of soul in the face of an uncomfortable delay. Patience is quietness of heart, rest of soul in the face of uncomfortable delay. I think that's pretty good because it is an uncomfortable delay. And the Lord preserving this in His Word, I think, wants to shout out to the, His people who so easily get lulled into not thinking about, to not recognizing that the Lord Jesus is coming back at any moment. And it's uncomfortable that He's not here. We need to fight for that rest of soul. And so James says, be patient like a farmer. Right? That's, the, that's the imagery he uses. Of course, this was much more vivid to that first century original here, the farmer of Palestine. He was dependent upon these late autumn and early spring rains. He had tilled all his soil. He had planted his seed, and there's not much more he could do while he waited. But his waiting was not wishful thinking. His waiting was certain hope, a confident expectation in both the, the predictable cycle of the rains that would come, as well as the transformation that he knew was happening under the soil, though he could not see it. In the same way, James says, be patient. Jesus is coming. The farmer knew it didn't take, I mean, the farmer knew it took time, so he didn't rush it. There's no way he could rush it. He anticipated it. He longed for the fruit, the precious fruit, as James says. And he waited. Be patient, Jesus is coming, period. That's the first, briefest point. Second is this establish your hearts. Jesus is coming soon. Establish your hearts. Jesus is coming soon. We press in and build on that first point. James seems to be moving us in these imperatives. I'm just using the, the language there you see in your Bible. Establish your hearts. He seems to be moving us from be patient, this more passive rest of soul, like the farmer, this inability to do anything, just simply wait, let it take its time, to now more of an active fight for your soul. Establish your hearts. Jesus is coming soon. 
And you say, wait a second, Nate, this letter is old. Wasn't this thing written like 2,000 years ago, and you're saying Jesus is coming soon, and yet we read in verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's think about that for a moment. You see, I think as children, I know when I was a child, when my kids were much younger than they are today, as children, we don't really we don't really get time, do we, at a certain age? There's this uh, long-standing joke on Hitchcock road trips uh, that when I'm asked uh, how long it is till we get to our de- destination, my standard answer is 30 minutes. The reality could be 10 minutes, it could be 3 hours or 10 hours, but my answer is always the same, 30 minutes. That doesn't work as it used to. It doesn't work with teenagers, but it used to work when they were little. Sometimes the follow-up question was, how long is 30 minutes, Dad? Well, then you got to kind of make it more concrete. Well, it's about the length of an episode of Dora the Explorer, okay? So that's about 30 minutes. That was helpful, but kids, as you know, at a certain age, time's a bit foggy for them. Kids at a young age don't have the developmental maturity to have those time markers in their thinking. And as I was thinking about this passage, I think that's a little taste, a little illustration of our understanding of, of soon, of our understanding of, of God's timetable. There's the God who we worship, the God who created time, who lives outside of time, who rules time, and then there's us who live inside of time and and we know nothing different than our experience. But aren't we just like kids? Listen to this passage from 2 Peter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, Peter told the church, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, Peter says, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Brothers and sisters, He is coming soon. Soon may not be what you think. Soon may not be what you think. Or it may be Wednesday morning at 10.30 in the morning. Establish your hearts. The Lord is coming soon. Now, establish your hearts is a different word than the word he used when he said be patient. 
The phrase could literally be translated, strengthen your hearts. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he talks about standing firm in the armor of God. It's the same word that Luke used in Luke 9 when he talked about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. It's the phrase that Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3, acknowledging that ultimately it's God's work to establish one's heart. The point is this, how do you establish your heart? By God's grace, establishing your heart is an active taking hold of His promises and of the means of grace that He has given to communicate those promises, the Word, the sacrament, and prayer. That's how you establish your hearts, is root yourself deeply in this, in what we're talking about this morning. He's not mentioned here, but in Romans 4, Abraham's life is described. Romans 4, starting at verse 18, it says, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Why did he believe against hope? Because he was a hundred years old, and his wife had a barren womb. And had for years, and yet the Scriptures say this, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's no doubt this is hard, rooting ourselves, establishing our hearts in the waiting is hard hard. Waiting as a sinner in an impatient world is difficult. We doubt, right? We doubt God's presence. We doubt God's promises. They seem distant to us at times. This was the story of God's Old Testament people, Israel. And it's so often our story as well. We doubt, and then what happens? We grumble. Right? That's the reason for verse 9 in our text this morning. We grumble. We get tired of waiting. We get tired of suffering. Enough is enough, Lord. We get tired of knowing, not knowing why or not knowing how long this is going to continue. And the Lord knows all this. And so He, through James, reminds the church to be careful. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming to judge, and that judge is on the other side of the door. He's about to be let in, so don't grumble, but strengthen your heart with the promises of God. You see, when you think about what it means to grumble, grumbling is never, ever a neutral thing. When you serve a sovereign God who rules all things by His good providence, grumbling is never neutral. It's always a statement of discontentment at what God has done. While that venting often can and is pointed directly at God, so often it happens within the body as we complain to one another. And these people that James was writing to, they were people who were suffering. 
They're under severe pressure. If, if we're to take the words to the rich seriously, these are people probably that are being persecuted in some way in their poverty. One can understand the temptation to be frustrated, to be grumbling. When is all this going to end, Lord? When are you coming back? Let's get on with it. And James says, guard your hearts. Be careful. Root yourself in the promises of His Word and in His good plan for your life. You don't have to see it all. You can't see it all. But He will soon make all things right. Romans 8, 23 and following is such a good promise. It's that promise. I'm not going to take the time to read it but just write it in your notes. Romans 8, for I consider the present sufferings not worth comparing. That wonderful passage of the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Not only the creation, but we ourselves. We groan inwardly. This is the end of that passage as we wait eagerly for adoption the redemption of our bodies. And so the Lord definitely, the Word calls us definitely to groan, but don't grumble. Groan for His return, but don't grumble. Instead, establish your hearts in His promises. Wait and work and pray for the grace to make it so. One final encouragement this morning from our text, and it's simply this. Remain steadfast God is at work. Remain steadfast. God is at work. So be patient. Establish your hearts. Remain steadfast. Every one kind of builds on the other. Remain steadfast. God is at work always. You might remember those of you who were here a couple years ago when I preached on waiting well from Paul in Corinthians. I shared the story of Florence Chadwick, and I'm going to share it again real briefly because it makes this point. She had already become the first, women, the first woman to swim both ways across the English Channel, and she had taken up the challenge, this was years ago, of swimming from Catalina Island, which is just off the coast of Los Angeles, to the coast of Southern California. It was a cool and foggy day when she attempted it, and she had swam for, swam, swam? She swam for, I don't know, 15 hours of swimming, and she was done. She was tapped out and her team insisted she could do it. They told her she was almost there, but she gave up, was pulled from the water, and she was a half mile away from the shore. And at the press conference the next day, she said this, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And James is, is doing that and more this morning through this passage for the church. He's saying, hey, the shore is there. Jesus is coming, period. Bank on it. It is history that is to be. Jesus is coming soon. Soon may not be the way you think soon is, but soon is soon. But he's also encouraging us to look back to look back to those who have already run the race, to those who have already longed their longings for the Messiah. This is really how the whole letter started, talking about steadfastness, about perseverance, 
the resolve to continue. Remember James 1, 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Well, James is saying not only is there a crown of life out there, Jesus is coming soon, but there are those who have already run the race who are enjoying their crowns of life already. He encourages God's people to look back to two peoples, the prophets and the man Job. And let's just look at them real briefly as we close. We could say it this way. Under this third point, remain steadfast. God is at work always. When life is hard, remember the prophets. When life is hard, remember the prophets. That's kind of what James is saying here. What prophet is he talking about? We don't know. Specifically, he doesn't say. Maybe it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was put into stocks. He was beaten. He was thrown into a well at one point, all for speaking the words of God. Maybe it was Daniel. He was carted off to a foreign land, served the Lord faithfully, only to find himself in a den of lions. Maybe it was Hosea. Who would have wanted Hosea's life? Hosea was told to marry a prostitute in order to become a living illustration of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. We could go on and on. The bottom line is the prophets suffered for doing God's will, and that they, yet they knew that Yahweh was at work. They knew that Yahweh would fulfill His promises, and so they endured And James says, remember the prophets, remain steadfast. When life gets hard, remember them. And then when life doesn't make sense, remember Job. Of course, you could swap these two. These these pertain to both groups of people. But when life doesn't make sense, remember Job. Now, if you don't know the story of Job, know this. It's a story of profound loss under the watchful eye of a good God. And that in and of itself just baffles us. Job lost it all. His family, his wealth, his health, his reputation. And the loss wasn't a result of anything he did. It wasn't a result of his sin. It was simply a dark providence of God. And yet through it all, James ne- uh, excuse me, Job never lost his faith. Instead, he said things like this. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. That's Job talking. When life absolutely stinks, to say stuff like this is incredible. But that's not what I love most about James' commendation of Job in James chapter 5. What I love most is that Job was far from perfect. Sure, by God's grace, he remained steadfast till the end. He never lost his faith, but his journey was not a smooth journey. He struggled, he questioned, he complained, he demanded answers from God, so much so that God rebuked him, and he had to put his hand over his mouth and say, I don't know what I'm talking about, forgive me. Now, why is that encouraging? 
because he's commended here. And so there's, there's hope for my mess. I don't have to come all together like I'm this, this steadfast champ. I'm going to struggle. My faith is going to struggle. I'm going to complain. I'm going to forget. You're going to complain. You're going to forget. But the Lord is going to hold on to those who are His, and by His grace, they will remain steadfast and endure to the end. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And it's a knowledge that the the Lord has firsthand in the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus that we just spent weeks celebrating. He knows our struggle to steadfastness, and that's why He came, not just to show us the way of life, but to give us the power through His death and through His resurrection. Jesus never wavered in order that His steadfastness might be ours. And to to all of you who are weak and who are weary, who are struggling in the slog of the journey, Job leads us to the gospel. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will stand upon the earth. Jesus has come. He is coming again. And so I exhort you this morning, hide yourself in Him and in His promises. Let His heart and steadfastness be yours, that our hearts might be firmly established in the gospel of grace. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to read a prayer as we close, a prayer that I read and come across this week that I think summed up well what we've just talked about and meditated on for a few moments This will be our closing prayer. Listen as I read. Sovereign Lord, we confess before you our deep impatience and frustration with life in a fallen world. We strive and do not succeed. We pray and do not see answers. We ask for holiness and find ourselves seemingly stuck in our sin. And as a result, we condemn you in our hearts and our words for your slowness to fulfill your promises. We easily become discouraged and give up the fight against our lusts. Teach us today that you treasure our humility more than our triumphs, our dependence more than our successes, and Christ's righteousness more than our best efforts. Teach us, therefore, to glory in our weakness, to boast in our inability, to lift up Jesus as our only hope in life and death. Fix our longing eyes and hearts on your sure and certain promise that one day you will finish the work, the good work that you have begun in us. Remind us that your timetable for new creation is neither fast nor slow, but is in keeping with your perfect wisdom. Teach us to long for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and to call others to share this glorious vision of hope. In the meantime, as we wait, grant us your peace in our hearts. Amen.